Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. You have not attended to them. So I will attend to you for your evil doings, says the Lord. I myself will gather my flock and I will bring them back. I will raise up shepherds who will shepherd, and they shall not fear any longer or be dismayed, nor shall any be missing, says the Lord. The days are surely coming when I will raise up a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and execute justice and righteousness. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. Well, this is the last Sunday in this series that we'll be dealing with the writings of Jeremiah. I hope you've come to know him almost as well as I have this fall. You know by this time that he felt called to be a prophet when he was 17 years old, that he made his way to the capital city of Jerusalem and took on the king and the wealthy landowners for their acts of injustice toward the poor. Primarily, he was concerned about widows, orphans, and the strangers among them. He preached, taught, harangued for 40 long years. Sometimes he was so grief-stricken that he could cry because no progress seemed to be made. But he never gave up believing that God was going to do something wonderful. One day, God would do something wonderful. Now, when we deal with Hebrew scriptures, we should be very careful that we understand Jeremiah probably had no thought of a baby growing up in a little nowhere place called Nazareth. Nazareth was so insignificant, it is not mentioned in any of the 39 scrolls of the Hebrew scriptures. Not mentioned a single time. He does not have in mind Jesus, his mother Mary. He has in mind a descendant of David who will sit on the throne in Jerusalem and finally make all things right. Yet this is an appropriate text for us Gentiles as long as we understand that. As long as we understand that we're looking back into a message 2,600 years old and finding meaning for us. So what meaning is there for us? Number one, woe to you who have been shepherding my people. You have not been attending them. Dr. Eugene Peterson says you've not been watching over my sheep. Last summer it was so terribly hot. One investigative reporter decided it's life-threatening. For a young mother to go into the supermarket, maybe she's got two little children. It takes her 30, 40 minutes to shop. She comes back out. Heat is built up into her car to 130 degrees. She puts these two little ones in the car, gets in, cranks it, and the air conditioner does not work. I wonder what it would cost her to get it fixed, he asked. So he took his car to an air conditioning repairman whom he knew and said, I want you to do something minor to the air conditioner in my car, something that anyone truly trained in repairing air conditioners would look for 
down the checklist just almost immediately, they would think of this particular part and would replace it. Can you do that? He said, sure. This little piece right here, how much does it retail for? $29.95. Oh, that's good. How much would you charge to take out a bad one and put in a new one? He said, well, the whole thing would run you $90, $95. Okay, he said, take mine out, put a bad one in. He did that. Then he recruited a young mother to drive the car with two little ones in it to a garage. He said, my air conditioner's not working. It's really hot out here. He took it to eight different garages. Four of them said, it's this little part right here. How much does that cost? $25, $27.95, $29.95. How much would it cost me to get it replaced? Oh, total $90, $95, $99. The other four, one told her 250, one told her 400, one told her 450, one told her a little over 1,000. It would just have to be completely rebuilt and a new compressor put in. You were supposed to be shepherding my widows, my orphans, my strangers among you, those who do not have sufficient voice, Woe to you. Another investigative reporter just this week, I saw this. So you know it's getting much colder now, particularly across the northern part of our United States. What if a woman, an older woman, went home one night after something at her church or synagogue and she got to the front door, it's freezing cold, snow on the ground, and she can't find her key. She looks all through her purse, goes back, searches in her car, can't find it. So she calls a locksmith. What would it cost her to get that key, to get inside? Well, he went to someone whom he trusted, and this person said, Well, I tell you what, let's make it really simple. <clears throat> let's put on this door the cheapest, simplest little lock there is to pick. Okay? the kind you really shouldn't put on your door. Let's just take a really simple one. Okay, a locksmith with this little instrument right here should be able to pick this lock in 10 seconds, 15 seconds. Well, how much would it cost if you were to come out on a cold night and do that for her, let her inside? $95, $96. Okay, let's do that. So they changed the doorknob, waited till after dark, sent this woman up to the door, she called. First one she saw in the Yellow Pages. She ended up that night, they took ten different people, they called. Four of them picked the lock fairly quickly, let her inside, said that'll be $95, that'll be 97 that'll be 99 The other six, two of them, one after the other said, well, you have to drill this out. You have to drill this whole lock out. And so they took a drill, and they drilled the whole thing out and put in a new lock, much more expensive. One said that'll be 250 one another $350. One guy came, said he had a special instrument in his car. He came up and broke the whole door knob off the door, pushed the workings into the inside, opened the door. He wanted to charge her $450. And one young man told her it'd be 650 after he got through and that he would take <clears throat> only cash. No check, no credit card, and it was 
big burly guy standing there with this elderly woman. And he said, she said, I don't have that kind of cash. I don't carry $650 around with me. He said, get in my car. We'll go to the ATM. And the reporter stepped out and said, no, I don't believe she's getting in the car with you. What's your name? Well, what's yours? And the conversation began. Woe to you, shepherds. You're supposed to be looking after my sheep. In Jeremiah's day, it was scales that didn't really balance. The poor were given a huge basket when they were selling and a very little basket if they were buying. It's the common. It's the everyday. Do you look after the littlest ones? The ones who may not know much about air conditioners or door locks? but who need their $95, certainly their $400,000, woe to you. Number two, well, since you've not been watching over them, Dr. Eugene Peterson translates, I'm going to be watching you. I'm watching you. You who lead, you who have responsibility over any part of the lives of others, I'm keeping an eye on you. Last Monday morning, our bishop, Robert E. Hayes, Jr., was here uh, working with a committee to plan next year's annual conference, which we'll be hosting uh, the last few days in May. Uh, He and I, you know, come from Texas. I've known his father for many, many years, his late father now, and I knew the bishop as well, though he's a little bit younger than I am. I saw him growing up and moving into the very capable man that he is today. Well, he asked me about a reporter at one of the television stations down in Houston. Did I remember this particular reporter? I said, yes. He said, well, I'm sort of sad. I watched him all those years, and now he's died. And all of a sudden, I said, do you remember Marvin Zindler? And he said, oh, yeah, I remember Marvin Zindler. So then others, as they were gathering around the table, said, Marvin Zindler, who was that? I said, well, Marvin Zindler was a part of a Jewish family in Houston. The grandfather had built a a men's store downtown Houston. They sold men's clothing, shoes. And the son of the the older man decided that's what he wanted to do, and he ran Zindler's, a men's store. But when Marvin came along, he decided he wanted to be an investigative reporter. I don't know, maybe at synagogue on Friday night, he heard the rabbi read Jeremiah. So we're going to go out and take a look at these shepherds and see how well they're doing. So he announced through one of the major stations there in Houston, you have a problem, you call me. I will solve your problem. Somebody taking advantage of you, you call me. I am Marvin Zindler, Eyewitness News. Well, he was doing really well for months and months. People would call Marvin Zindler, and that night on television he would solve their problem. And all of a sudden he got a call one night, and a fellow said, well, Zindler, if you really have any clout in this state... Let's see if you can shut down that house of prostitution over in LaGrange. He said, beg your pardon? He said, there's a house of prostitution over in LaGrange, Texas. It's been there for years. Nobody's ever shut it down, even though prostitution in Texas is against the law. Marvin Zender said, I've never heard about that. And the fellow said, well, they call it the chicken ranch. But it's strange that all the people who work there are in their early 20s and all female." Now, I can tell you who the customers are, he said. Texas A&M is an all-male school. It was then. 
And some of those young Aggies go down to LaGrange to the chicken ranch. But that's not all. You know, when the legislature's in session in Austin, some of them can't get home to Amarillo. They go down to LaGrange to the chicken ranch. Marvin Zindler said, I'll look into that. So the next morning, he took a television crew, and they went to LaGrange, Texas. He went to the sheriff's office and said, I'm here to ask you about this house of prostitution you got. We don't have any house of prostitution. Well, I was told you did. They call it the chicken ranch. Well, that's what it is. It's a chicken ranch. Well, why are all the people who work there young women in their early 20s? Well, they're interested in raising chickens. So he took his camera crew over to the chief of police, and, and he said, uh, what are you going to do about closing down this house of prostitution? We don't have a house of prostitution. Oh, yes, you do. Call it the chicken ranch. Well, it is a chicken ranch. Why all the people that work there are young women in their early 20s? Well, they're interested in raising chickens. That's all they got out of them. So the caller the next Sunday night said, well, Zender, you didn't get it done, did you? He said, I'm going to. And the next day, he took one of his cameras and set it up across the road from the chicken ranch and said, if all you're doing is raising chickens, I'm sure you won't mind if I take a few pictures. And all the young Aggies who thought their mother might be watching Marvin Zindler suddenly were not interested in going to the chicken ranch. And the legislators, whose wives might be watching Marvin Zindler, decided they weren't interested in going to the chicken ranch, and it would bankrupt. What did it take? One camera. One camera. Are you doing something you don't want anybody else to know about? The Lord God said, I'm watching you. I'm watching you. Number three. Then he said, I'm going to raise up some new shepherds. I'm sick of these old shepherds. They're not getting it done. So we're going to have some new shepherds. And he meant a new king. He meant new nobles, new landowners. Surely the next generation will do better. We know the importance of leadership. A few weeks ago, there was a special on one of the television channels on the Coca-Cola company. I decided to watch. You may know this story. It was 1887. A pharmacist in Atlanta, Georgia, back at the time when drugstores usually had soda fountains, decided if he was going to compete well in Atlanta, he needed to have a drink nobody else had. And so he tinkered around with this spice and that spice and this flavoring and that flavoring, and finally he started selling this product. When he decided to put a little carbonated water in it, it really started selling. Seven years later, a fellow named Asa Candler said to him, I'd like to buy your business. How much you want for that formula? I don't know. Hadn't thought about selling it. Mr. Candler said, I'd give you 2000 Oh, no, it's worth more than that. 2100 This is in 1894. 2200 2300 Pharmacist said sold. Mr. Candler bought it. Forty years later, in the throes of the Great Depression, he sold it for $25 million. You know this name, Candler? It's the name of a school of theology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. Mr. Candler gave the Methodist Church a lot of money to build that great university. Yeah. Well, the Woodruff family bought it 
1933, the Woodruffs bought it. And Mr. Woodruff set up his son to be the president, and he was a good one. He ran that company well for 47 years. And then they hired as their president a young man whose family had escaped from Cuba when Castro came to power named Guazetta. Guazetta was terrific. For 17 years, Coca-Cola went up. Warren Buffett and others decided this is one of the greatest companies in the world. Bought thousands of shares. And then all of a sudden, Guazetta had cancer and was gone. And they floundered. Tried one leader, not good. Tried another, not so good. Another, not so good. For nine years, Coca-Cola just lay there doing nothing. And then they found a new president named Mutar Kent, Middle Easterner, Turkish background. Knows how to run Coca-Cola. For three years, it's going like this again. It's leadership. One of my daughters-in-law's family from Alabama. If the Sooners aren't winning, they root for the Tide. They love the Tide. They've had some great football teams, of course. Most of us football fans remember Bear Bryant. He was coach at Alabama for 24 years. It's a great time. But when Bear Bryant left, they floundered for nine long years, trying different leadership. wasn't there. They finally brought in Gene Stallings. Some liked him, some not so much. He had some success. Only six years, they were ready to move him out. And then they had another long spell, eight more long years. And then Nick Saban came. In five years, he's had them back in the top ten. It's about leadership. Works for Coca-Cola, works for Alabama football. It works in the classroom. Superintendent of schools, principals, clergy, chiefs of police, attorneys, physicians, air conditioning repairmen, locksmiths. We need some better leadership. God said he's going to find it. Number four. One day, the day surely coming, I will create a righteous branch who will execute justice and righteousness. We're going to call him Yah. It literally says in the Hebrew, Yah is Sedekeh. Yah, shortened form of I am who I am. The I am who I am is the God of right standing. Not the God of injustice. The God of right standing. And we Gentiles believe nobody got it right until Jesus of Nazareth. Scott Walker says that one afternoon he was driving across West Texas. Hadn't seen a tree in nearly 100 miles. It was early fall. He finally decided, if I'm going to get where I'm going, I need to stop at one of the little cafes. He was only seeing one every 25 or 30 miles. Get me a cup of coffee. So he pulled into one of those. said, I walked way back in a little corner booth. When the waitress came, I told her I just wanted black coffee. While I was waiting for her to get there with it, I saw somebody left the morning paper in the booth. I picked it up, and it was saying, Today is Veterans Day, November the 11th. I was reading a little bit about Veterans Day. My coffee came. I drank my coffee. I got up to leave, and I noticed that the couple sitting in the very next booth were older. 
he had on a cap. And across the front of his cap, it said, WW2 Veteran. I walked over to him, and I said, Sir, thank you for your service. Where did you serve? And he said, the Philippines. Really? My mother and father were missionaries in the Philippines. I was a little boy. What was your unit? And the older man said, 32nd Red Era Division. And Scott said, no, it wasn't. I know about the 32nd. You were the guys who fought day after night after day down the Via Verde Trail. So the old man's eyes welled up. He said, not many people remember that, son. He said, I remember. Thank you for your service. He said, I walked to the cashier. I paid for my coffee. And I said quietly to her, I want to buy their meal. And I went on my way. But the one who's willing to fight for justice and righteousness and to die for you if necessary has himself set your thanksgiving table.